to me, as a, as, a, as a researcher in this space, anytime you have turmoil and ferment, that means excitement, right? Because then there's no, there's no um, accepted answer for how we need to move forward. Hey again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Modern Learners Podcast. I'm Will Richardson, your host, and in this segment, I talk to Rich Halverson, co-author of one of my favorite books about education titled Rethinking Education in an Age of Technology, which is just out in its second edition. I have to say that when this book first came out in 2009, it quickly became a huge influence on my thinking about the challenges of school change. And even though Rich is fond of the word personalized learning, which anyone who knows me knows gets my hackles up, his research around it is an important addition to this discussion. Honestly, this was one of my favorite conversations of the 58 episodes that we've done, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. Just a quick reminder that this episode is being brought to you by Change School, and if you're looking for a powerful professional learning experience that can help you understand those challenges to school change even more deeply, our seventh cohort of Change School starts on February 11th, and registration is now open and filling up fast at change.school. Bring some friends or even a team from your school to make the learning even better. And finally, don't forget that our first Modern Learners course on the topic of reimagining assessment is already online at modernlearners.com assessment. And you can check out all of the resources, programs, and events that we're offering at modernlearners.com. But for now, Really hope you enjoy this conversation with Rich Halverson. Cheers, everyone. So, Rich, thanks so much for taking some time today. Really appreciate it. I, I want to tell you that when I first read the Rethinking Education book in 2009, I went back and looked at the copyright data. I can't believe it's been 10 years since that book came out the first time. But it was a book that had a profound impact on me. And I was just telling you before we started recording that I'm up here in Hamilton at Colgate watching my son play basketball. And we did this trip very quickly. And so I didn't bring the book with me, but I had it out getting ready for this podcast. If I showed it to you right now, you'd see just about every page is underlined and marked up and everything else. It's one of those books that's, that's dog-eared. And I've gone back to it many, many times. So I was thrilled when I saw there was a second edition that just came out. And that's why um, I thought it would be great just to catch up again, because we talked, I think it was probably seven or eight years ago, you and Alan and I, I think had a conversation. Um, so this is a great time to catch up. So thanks for making the time. Really appreciate it. Sure, sure. It's my pleasure. So I guess the, the first question would be, what's changed? I mean, you know, it's been 10 years. Obviously, if you're doing a second edition, you felt like there was a, enough of an update that, uh, that it, or the world had changed enough to require an update. So I, I guess the first question would be just from a meta kind of sense, what's changed in 10 years, do you think? Well, I think the, the first thing is that the kind of changes that we were predicting that would happen to education have really come about. Um, people have taken much more control over their own learning. They seek out learning opportunities, both for academic uh, learning, but also for personal learning. And they use and orchestrate their own digital media environments in order to do it. And so the, the ways in which the new media environments have accelerated the kind of things that we were seeing initially um, in the book has really been sort of stunning. And the other part that's been very interesting is um, the degree to which some schools are embracing the power of digital learning tools and integrating digital learning um, environments into their own uh, uh, spaces. 
Um, when we wrote the book in the early 2000s, the public schools in particularly were sort of in the grip of No Child Left Behind. Right. They were really driven to um, uh, improve their test scores, and it was not that clear how digital learning tools would, would move, you know, move the needle in that way. Um, but in the last 10 years, I think people have become a little disillusioned with the accountability movement. Um, even some of its strongest advocates have seen no matter how much you try to implement what works and you do what you're supposed to do and research proven practices, um, there's something else going on in schools that makes, uh, makes it difficult to improve learning outcomes for all students. And I think one of the things that we, we really explore in the, in the first book and then even more in the second edition is the role of motivation and engagement, especially as learners get older um, and making their goals personal and, and developing learning environments that they can accelerate their own interests. And I think, you know, now we're starting to see uh, just a whole bunch of schools across the country and across the world embrace things like personalized learning and blended learning as a way to integrate the digital learning tools into the regular school platform. So it's interesting because in that sentence, the last part of that sentence, you use two words that for me are very interesting in the way that they're used in the ed tech space. You said at one point that about le making learning personal, mm -hmm. but then you also said that there are environments for personalized learning. And I have a real kind of conundrum around those, the way those two words are used, right? Because I think that in most cases, when we talk about motivation and engagement, we're talking about personal choice. We're talking about agency and the ability to choose and, and pursue our passions. But when a lot of people use that term personalized, what they're really talking about is our stuff put in a way that makes maybe a little bit more sense for you or that maybe you can connect to a little bit more, but it's still our stuff. We're not giving you choice or agency around the what, but maybe the how. So talk a little bit about that. What are you seeing in terms of that kind of tension and, and what would you like to see? Or what do you think the moment requires in terms of personal versus personalized? Uh, thanks for, for going there, Will. Um, in, when, when we wrote the book, the first edition, I was, I was not that excited about the prospect of public schools embracing the power of digital media and learning. So I got much more involved in things like video game design and um, the design of digital learning environments in informal spaces and personal spaces. But in the last maybe five years or so, I've started to hang around with, with educators here in Wisconsin and then around the country who are starting to, to take the ideas of engagement and motivation seriously in schools. And this tension that you talk about for personalization is right in the middle, I think, of the current discourse of education. Um, there's a, a whole bunch of folks who see personalization as the next stage in accountability, um, a way to link the content that you know, our culture and our society want young people to learn um, to an individualized profile of a learner so that the, there's a learning trajectory that's established. And then, you know, once you get to, through uh, one content step, you go to the next and the next. And the ultimate goal is accountability. The ultimate goal is improving test scores. But there's a whole other tradition of personalization that comes out of the progressive movement where, excuse me, where personalization is about how do you tap into a person's interests right and use digital media learning tools to to create uh, communities around those interests people like Jim G and Henry Jenkins have really led the way in helping us think about 
the, the, the communities that emerge or have emerged around um, affinity spaces, online communities that, that uh, facilitate people's interests in, in, in pursuing their own learning goals. And I think one of the struggles in personalized learning research now is that um, it's kind of like in politics, right? Where the, the same word means different things to different communities. Right. The way that we think about this in our research now is the personalized for and personalized by distinction. Um, uh, where schools, you know, the schools that are still uh, working on the traditional accountability frameworks do personalization for their learners. And that sort of comes out of a tradition of special education and the IEPs where educators make a plan for learners. And then the other folks who are more on the progressive side are much more interested in personalization by where students have voice and choice in what they're going to learn and the, you know, the, the, you know, the pace and, the, and the, the, the goals that they select for their learning. And so right now we're in this like really exciting mismatch, mishmash time, right? Where people are struggling with what these terms mean practically in everyday teaching and learning. So you call it exciting, I call it frustrating, right? <laughs> uh, I think the excitement, for me, the excitement is that in the mid-2000s, we were in kind of like a Soviet era. Yeah. Where, right. where the, the agency, agency in schools was just diminished across the board. Teachers were increasingly pressed to do stuff that they didn't make. Um, they're using tests that they didn't create. Uh, students had, were, the only choice they had was compliance. Um, it was much more like a state model of schooling. And, and we're starting to see the fissures in that now as, as um, schools are starting to uh, experiment more with the tools they have at hand to make, make learning more interesting for young people. So you spend pages and pages and pages of, on this in the book, I know. But how do you think this rolls out? I mean, in, in terms of, uh, let's say, 10, 20 years from now, um, and not that they're necessarily competing interests, but certainly there are people who have opinions on both sides of, of what, what the majority of the learning environment should look like or what the majority of the learning experience should look like. As, you know, as a progressive educator, I would say, I would hope it would be more personal, that there would be more choice, more agency for kids to pursue what they care about. Um, the accountability folks, though, are going to struggle with that, obviously, because it changes the whole equation as to how you figure out <laughs> if we're succeeding or not. So, I mean, what's your sense? I mean, it sounds like the arc is more toward personal now. Does that keep going that way? Or, or what do you think happens? I think schools in that way are kind of a microcosm of the rest of the world, is that at, at the same time, you have um, environments that allow people to pursue their own interests about politics and music and entertainment and you know diet and whatever um and so you can go you can create a completely like closed bubble media environment around what you care about and that's legit because that's how the information world works right now but at the same time there's a, a shared sense of struggle for any particular bubble community to become legitimate to any other communities. And so in a public space, legitimacy becomes a really big deal, right? Like mm -hmm. right. got to be able to say, this is worth pursuing. Right. And so the arguments for legitimacy in, in the early 21st century have really relied heavily on um, the traditions of social sciences from the 20th, 20th century. The idea that if you can get agreement on numbers, 
right, agreement on metrics, then that's a really strong plank in a legitimacy argument. And so I think that we're going to see sort of this ongoing struggle between educators who want to take advantage of new media tools to customize learning environments for individuals, but then also an institutional pressure for legitimacy. And so what the, how does that turn out? Well, one of the things that we're starting to see is like uh, a national movement for measurement of social and emotional learning, right? Which is a part of the academic side of schools that was not captured by math and, and, and uh, language learning tests. Right. And so trying to quantify more, a, a broader range of learning experiences in schools while at the same time, schools are trying to sneak out and embrace more, you know, arts-based pedagogies and, and uh, customized learning experience. And so to me, as, an, as, a, as a researcher in this space, anytime you have turmoil and ferment, that means excitement, right? Because then there's no, there's no um, accepted answer for how we need to move forward. And that makes for, that makes for a really interesting um, an interesting space to learn and a time of, of innovation for people who are in, in the profession. So obviously one of the trends these days is to move somewhat away from numbers and those quantifiable things into more competencies, right? So we've had Maine and a number of other states who have tried to adopt competency-based types of ways of, I think what they're trying to do is assign legitimacy in a different way, right? And it's not just about a number or a score, it's about can you do these particular things? But what we've seen in Maine is that a lot of people have gone, no, 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 no. I want the numbers. Right. Parents, parents are saying, this isn't working. I can't understand this. Just give me a number. Kids are trying to figure out if they're, you know, if they're gifted or if they're succeeding at a high rate or whatever else, and it makes it much more difficult. So I, I'm wondering, in your opinion, and what's your sense in terms of, again, do numbers win out here or can we? really as a, I guess as a nation or as a society, come to some common language or common understanding around a different definition of what success is in schools that takes all those socio-emotional aspects of it and, and creativity and curiosity and all those other things that aren't quantifiable very easily. I mean, you think that's gonna happen? Is that possible? Um, I think that one of the long-standing, uh, No Child Left Behind is going to be seen as one of those um, uh, landmark pieces of education legislation. I, I just think, and, and, the, and the number, the sort of the culture of numbers that was established by NCLB is here with us to stay. And so the, the main question for me is, what are you going to count? And as you mentioned in the experience in Maine, um, proficiency and competency-based education, ultimately it comes down to rubrics. And ultimately rubrics are scored and ultimately gets turned into numbers. And so some of the, like one of the, one of the ways to think about this is that, is there a way to reduce complex learning down to a simple number? That's sort of the traditional thinking of the accountability movement. But then the other way of thinking about it is that, can we lift numbers to capture complex things? And there's two really interesting areas of, of development that I think are, are important to note here. One is the telemetry, clickstream, you know, online behavior data work that's happening in around education data mining and machine learning, where we're getting a much better sense of how do we capture 
the range of participation in complex learning environments. Um, I was involved in some of this work in um, here at UW-Madison um, about five or seven years ago, but my colleagues Matthew Berland and Alex Bowers and um, Ryan Baker um, uh, in the education space are really taking seriously, if you're in an online space, everything that you do is counted. So you can, you can find out things about the persistence of how people try at, at new ideas or um, their attention spans or what they choose as their next um, their next lesson, the next activity that they want to engage with, or how they collaborate with others. And so you can take really complex skills and get a much more accurate measure of them by their participation, which, you know, in, in real life, in the analog world, um, you can't, there's no information for that. Video data is really hard to reduce to numbers that way. So that's one, one really um, important area where I think numbers are gonna lead to a revolution in how we think about learning. But the other one is uh, developed by my colleague, uh, David Schaefer here at, at uh, UW, um, where he takes a quantitative approach to ethnography. And he tries to, he, so basically David's approach is to take, to use pre-post tests of learners when they're in a complex space, right? And say it's they're around like some engineering task or something like that. And then try to use social network analysis to analyze the, um, the density and the, and, the, and the relation between ideas that they bring into a learning environment and then what they bring going out of the learning environment and then do a pre-post comparison between the network of ideas they have at the beginning and they have at the end. This to me is like potentially revolutionary in assessment because it, it does raise the numbers to the level of the phenomena, right? He's trying to capture the complexity and interdependence of understanding pre and post in a way that both is um, analytically satisfying and legitimate, but also does right by the phenomena. So I think the data science thing and the quantitative ethnography ideas, those are two examples of how if we're going to have numbers, we should have numbers that, that just are, are sort of at the level of the phenomena we're trying to capture. So is that going to require a change in the definition of learning? I don't think so. I think that um, it, it comes closer to what we've always meant by learning. You know, so learning uh, from a psychological and behavioral perspective is, is um, leads to behavior change. And then from a philosophical perspective, it has to do with wonder and has to do with curiosity. And I think in either case, either your mental processes or your physical actions change with respect to learning. And, and so the, the better analytical tools we have to capture those changes and the decisions we make or the, you know, the, the, the way that our ideas relate to one another, the more we're going to have analytic tools that get to what we have always meant by what learning is. Right. So, and I agree with you. And, you know, I love the idea of wonder. Um, I think that echoes, again, we talk about Seymour Saracen and his definition of wanting to learn more all the time, right? That productive learning requires wonder, it requires more curiosity, it requires continuing to, to ask questions and whatever else. I'm not sure that that's the definition that most people in society have of what learning is, though, if you know what I mean, right? I think uh, most people think learning is, well, you got a 92, you must have learned it. 
Right. Um, it's very simplistic. It's not nearly as complex as what you talk about. So when I ask if we need to kind of change the defini definition of learning, maybe I, I meant, do we have to change the perception of learning, do you think, in order for people to embrace those types of measures and those types of analytics um, as, a, as a measurement of success? I think that, um, that that's a, it's a really good question because there's, there's, there's always a lag in uh, when you have a giant policy advance, there's a lag in understanding that corresponds to that. And so I think, you know, now we're in sort of the, the um, how would you say, um, the popular acceptance of the kind of analytics that NCLB right. created and made popular. And so the sort of the popular discourse, like if you read the New York Times, what the New York Times thinks about school success, it's in terms of, you know, 2003 uh, Department of Education policy. Like, are you moving right. with the test scores? Right. Um, and that's, that's sort of the popular conception. But I think, I mean, one of, the, one of the things that's so fascinating to me about digital media is now there's public expressions of wonder all over the place. Like, all you have to do is watch a middle schooler surf on YouTube, right? To go from one topic to another, to another, to another and then dive down into one, into one area and then pop up and look around and see what else there is. That's sort of like scanning behavior is the definition of what we mean by curiosity and wonder. And it's facilitated in everyday digital environments that leave a breadcrumb now. And, you know, and as we know, there's sort of like downsides to tracking people's usage on things sure. like YouTube and Google and so forth. But the upside is that you can, you could start to get a sense that, things like wonder and curiosity might enter into our common discourse as the legitimate measures of learning. So just on that, I'm reading Surveillance Capitalism. I am too. I just got that book, yeah. <laughs> so maybe we can have a chat on that in a couple of months. Um, that's, but it, that's an interesting kind of obviously uh, darker narrative around capturing all this data and what we do with it. And, and you know, we haven't really talked about the role that um, ed tech corporations have in this as well, in terms of manipulating, taking data, manipulating it, personalization, obviously. There's a lot of people who wanna make a lot of money on the idea of personalized learning in terms of pumping out curriculum and, and achieving those old metrics that we were talking about. But I, I just wanna, I, I keep thinking too that it's not just a definition of learning that's kind of up for grabs, it's also this whole definition of education. And I think, you know, you, you said this in the book, um, I think in both editions, but the idea of education with schooling is slowly unraveling. Um, but yet again, in our society, I think we all, we all kind of say, well, if you want an education, you have to go to school to get it. So talk a little bit about that. Is it really unraveling to the extent where we're going to have to reframe that in our heads as well and say, well, yeah, if you want an education, you don't really need to go to school. You can go and do it this way. I was having a, a conversation with my brother-in-law over the holiday break about, is there ever going to be a band like the Beatles again? <laughs> sort of a monoculture band, right? That every, there's a common reference point to almost everybody, you know, will we'll recognize, um, they'll recognize Motown. They'll say like, oh yeah, all right, that's, that's legit. And I think, you know, the, the downside of an interest-based society that we have now that's facilitated by digital media is a lack of central reference points. 
and school continues to be a central reference point. And so the, the, the legitimation um, function of schools in society is really important and it continues to be important. And so if you graduate from a known place, that is widely seen as an indicator that you got something. You got status, you got knowledge, you got like, that's a thing. So high school diplomas or graduating from Bryn Mawr or, you know, from Colgate or like those, like that's a legit thing. And shared senses of legitimacy are rarer and rarer in a diverse society. And so I think the the role of school for legitimating is not going to go away because we're just, we're sort of parched as a society to have something we can point to that say everybody agrees that's good. Um, and so I think a lot of the, a lot of the, the work that I find most interesting is within those institutions like schooling, what are we doing to make the, um, the technologies for learning inside the institution as, as um, permeable as possible to the advances that are going on outside the institution? So I'm still, I, I think, I don't know if, if how, I don't speak for Alan on this, my co-author on the book, but um, I've always been a strong advocate for public institutions because that's what we got. And, and we need to put our best efforts into making sure that those institutions um, reflect our, our best ideas. Just a quick pause in our podcast to remind you that if you haven't already taken our 10 Principles for Schools of Modern Learning audit, you might want to consider it, especially if you want to get a clearer sense of where your school stands in relation to hundreds of other schools from around the world who have already taken it. And importantly, if you want to get an even clearer sense of what schools who are well down the road to creating modern learning experiences and environments are already doing. The audit is built on 40 benchmarks that will in and of themselves challenge your thinking and your practice. And if you take the 10 minutes to complete it, we'll immediately send you your score and some first steps that you can take to close some of the gaps that you may have. I promise you it's a great way to start to identify the work you need to be doing. Just head on over to modernlearners.com audit. That's modernlearners.com audit. And start learning what you can do to move your school forward tomorrow. And now, back to my conversation with Rich Halverson. It's interesting, right? I mean, it's a, and again, it's fraught right now, that whole conversation about college. I mean, Kevin Carey's book, The End of College, where, you know, he basically talks about college being a signal, not so much about what you know, but what, you know, that you can actually write the paper, you can go through the process of, you know, um, collaborating or whatever you need to do to, to get the outcome. You know, as, as a, a parent of two kids who are in college, one in a traditional college like Colgate and my other um, in an online college, Arizona State. Um, what's been interesting to me has been, though, asking them, so what have you learned? And, and that's their responses, in all honesty, make Kevin Carey's book resonate <laughs> for me, you know, because what they're learning is basically what they learned in high school, which was how to play that game of school and what they're learning here and online in many cases. And, you know, Tucker's just a freshman, so I'm, I'm thinking there are better things to come. But um, so far, the, the feedback has been, well, I just got to figure out how to, you know, make it get, get the grade so I, I can just keep going to the next course, you know, that type of thing. Um, I wonder what you think in terms of um, 
how we make education. It's, I, I was really interested in, again, where you started with this in terms of motivation and, and you know, interest. I mean, how do we make education in general? And then you talk about that middle school kid who's obviously motivated to keep going down that path. I mean, how do we make these things square, though? How do we make them kind of sync with one another? Because they do seem very disparate. Looking at my two teenager or now, you know, 19 and 21 year old kids, they're very different things. Um, they're learning outside and they're learning inside. Um, so how do we kind of bring those two things together, which is the theme of your book, too? I think it's something that you, you said. We're going to have to do this in some way. So how do we do that? I think um, one, it's, it's uh, again, I, I have the, the idea of a, we live in a pluralistic society. And so what we want is our institutions to simultaneously address multiple needs. And so one of the needs we want from our schools is that they engage learners and that learners build a sense of lifelong curiosity um, and continue to want to know more about their own, their own profession, but also the rest of the world. But then we also want our institutions to get legitimacy, which means they, they, they you know, um, certify your efforts. But then we also want our institutions to do socialization. Right. Uh, right. As, as uh, you know, the, there's all kinds of discussions going on about, you know, Gen X's and Gen Y's and baby boomers and all this other kind of stuff about yep. um, the employment picture that's happening for people in their 20s. And um, a lot of, I, you know, as a baby boomer, you know, a lot of my angry get off my lawn <laughs> arguments to the, to the young, to the, to the people in their 20s are, well, but you don't know how this all works. You know, you don't, you don't like, you don't have the, 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 um, the, uh, the, you don't have shared norms and know how to behave in, in environments where you can get a job. And, and I think, you know, my 20 something friends are saying that we have that, like we grew up in schools and no child's left behind, right? We we're thoroughly socialized into institutional expectations of how to, how to survive in our world. But that function of participating in an institution that you know how the things work, like you do your work, you get your grade, you go to the next level, like that's a, you know, turns out that people need to learn that. And that's a function we can't, we, we have to have in our schools. But I think your point, and what I agree with you is that if that's the main point you get from your education, you lose out on the good stuff, which is the sense right. of wonder and, and moving forward. And what I've seen is just, I mean, people live really complex lives. Like they they have their institutional life, and then they have their interest-based life. Um, my, my, my son is uh, in the uh, U.S. Air Force, and he just turned 30 last week. And uh, um, he, 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 you know, he goes from base to base. Every four years, he gets transferred all around the country and all around the world. But on Thursday nights and Friday nights, he has a date night with his friends from high school and, and the other people that he trained with. And they play you know, online games. They play, you know, Battleground or Fortnite or Overwatch. And that's how they interact with each other. That's right. the thing, right? And so he's got his life as, a, as an employee of the U.S. government. And then he's got his interest-based, digital-driven world. And for him, they all come together, even though individually those things are not really connected. And I think most people's lives are like that now. They have... You know, they can live, they live with multiple channels and the plurality of their lives is how, how things work. Do schools play a role in helping them develop their literacies around that stuff or what? 
Well, this is, I think, the one of the for me the biggest challenge of schools in in the coming decades is is what I call the um, participation gap or the equity problem. Um, so you can you can imagine you get two kids, right? One kid um, who gets a chemistry assignment in high school and then immediately comes home and looks online, looks on Wikipedia to find a, a graphic of the Krebs cycle or whatever. Um, and then uh, goes on a, a chat window with her friends who are doing the homework together and then looks at a Brightstorm video or some Khan Academy video for an alternative representation of the content. This young person can build her own digital learning environment to reinforce her academic work, right? Well, another kid uses the same kind of digital tools, but when that kid gets chemistry homework, um, he puts on headphones and listens to, you know, music and then is probably checking his fantasy baseball lineup and they're totally disjunct, right? The, the academic channel and the entertainment channel do not overlap at all. And for me, the big equity question there is that where does the first kid learn to use digital resources to amplify her academic world? Well, it's not taught in schools because in schools, chat windows and going to homework sites is cheating. Right. Right. So that's, that's out. And so it turns out that the first kid learns this from home because she lives with parents and guardians who have information in, you know, world related jobs. She sees her mom or her grandma, um, checking email and having video conferences. And for her, it's just, a way to do things, right? The second kid, maybe his parents are not involved in work like this. Maybe it's more wage labor or work that takes them on the road and they don't have that dimension of their work. And so you get this, this gap that happens between students who know how to make the digital tools work for them academically and students who just don't have that experience. And schools have to take a stand in this area because otherwise the inequalities that young people bring into the school environment are just going to get replicated perpetuated yeah right and and to me that is the whole issue right is that you can imagine like you know a, a, an army of warriors that have like pitchforks and and helmets fighting against cyborg warriors that have like massive digital displays all around <laughs> them well it's not even a battle and that's what we're doing with our with our with our kids right now is that when schools basically say like, I don't know, the only way you can use the Chromebooks is if you do what we say. Right. Right. Which is the, which is the reality in most schools. It is is the reality. And this is why I think this is the equity challenge for the 21st century is that schools don't understand the role that they should be playing in making more equitable access to learning environments. They don't get that. They think that providing Chromebooks and regulating their use is sufficient and of course it's not because that's not uh, people the only way people use chromebooks the way schools want kids to use chromebooks is at school right that's right. that's, yeah. that's it so it really is a re-envisioning of many of the roles many of the systems the environments the experiences that happen in schools both at a at a k through 12 and also obviously university level too and in the book you mentioned a couple of times you say we need a new horace mann right we need 
we need someone to to um, to come in maybe with a different idea of what schooling is. So can you talk a little bit about that in terms of who do you think that might be? Is it one person? Is it is it somewhere like uh, is it at the federal level? Is it at a local level? I mean, how do we how do we get the leadership that we need to begin to have some of these conversations at scale? Yeah. So that so that schools can maybe move a little bit more quickly than they're able to right now. Well, one one good thing that we have going for us is that the model for what this might look like is already here. It's just not coming from within the institutions. And so if, you know, I teach at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and if I go over to the library right now, I will see all kinds of young people building, living in learning environments that they've created, right? They got like two or three windows open on their laptops. They got their phone working. They're listening to something. They're getting multimodal interaction with content in ways that just just um, sort of stupefies what was possible in terms of learning theory like 15, 20 years ago, right? It, it's a whole new generation of what learning could look like. And it's, it's just bubbling up from underneath us. And so, so the good thing about this is that the model we need to turn to is among us. It's just lived and not theorized yet. And so that's a, that's a, that's a big, that's an important um, thing to, to point out. It doesn't have to be discovered. It's just got to be realized. Um, but the other thing, the, like, who are the people? Um, I know that, that Google gets a lot of, gets hammered a lot for data sharing and so forth. But man, you know, Seymour Papert, or not Seymour Papert, I'm sorry, um, Larry Cuban, for years was saying classroom meets the computer and the classroom wins. Um, I don't know, Google kind of won. I mean, my kid goes to school in a public school system that has not traditionally been pro-technology. And she turns in all of her assignments on Google Classroom. And she uses, she does collaborative um, writing with her friends in ways that were just not even possible five years ago. And it's just an everyday part of schools now. So the Google Classroom is a giant part of the solution. And also people like Sal Khan, who, you know, revolutionized what we could, how we could think about um, sharing expertise around standardized content. And like Khan Academy still, it, you know, there's all sorts of critiques about it because it's been around for a while, um, but it still provides a model for knowledge sharing that is revolutionary. And so do, is there an, a, a specific Horace Mann around? I don't think so, but the, but the, kinds of changes that are as revolutionary as the ones that he promoted in the 1800s are right here among us. And they're starting to coalesce into a new uh, movement around how we do education. So I was gonna ask you one more question, but now I'm gonna ask you two, if you don't mind, because that, that spurred a question for me. When I think about Google Classroom, when I think about Khan Academy, all good stuff. I mean, I think transformative in many ways, right? But I see them as teaching tools more than I see them as learning tools. I see schools employing them as teaching tools more than allowing kids to use those types of tools in the ways they would outside of school, um, which would be to pursue that. Again, it, 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 it comes to this question of agency again. So I wonder the extent to that, the, the, that that resonates with you, or maybe um, you want to push back against that or, or, um, the extent to which you think they should be learning tools or teaching tools or somewhere in the middle or whatever else? 
there, I think there's sort of an, an uncomfortable, um, um, maybe a detente between um, <laughs> schools and Google in the sense that there's so much functionality that the Google Classroom, the G Suite gives um, to school. There's just, and, and it's free. I mean, right. it's free financially, but um, it, it's just, it's an extraordinary capacity to do stuff, to use forms and, and, and the, the, the uh, digital media creation tools and the graphic design tools and the collaborative writing tools. It's altogether different than a textbook. I mean, it's just, it's just like a different, a different kind of thing than, than a textbook, like just sort of exponentially more capacity. So if you give a kid a history textbook and then, and, and then you give a kid YouTube, right? The capacity for wonder in YouTube is so much greater because it's just a click away to go and use it for your own purposes. Whereas in a history textbook is the next page. No it's doubt. All curated content. And so I think the, the problem that a lot of new media technologies in schools have is a compared to what problem? It's, is it when it's compared to Seymour Papert's ideal of what education could be with digital learning tools, then it comes up short because Seymour Papert's a visionary and that's an ideal that, that all of us who are in this space hold dear. Um, when it's compared to the status quo of instructional materials that are in schools, well, honestly, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just a, it's a revolutionary change in, in, the, in the, um, the resources that young people have at their, at their disposal to, to you know, further their learning. It, it, it's just, I mean, yeah, just, I, just watching young people use YouTube is just, it's so humbling right. for people who are educated with textbooks. And do they get lost and do they like, you know, do unpacking videos and watch kids do, like, people make videos about Sims <laughs> life? Yes, 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 and, 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 right? And, and that's really interesting and cool, I think, as far as education is concerned. I think... You're right about Pappert, obviously. I mean, his vision for what technology could be in schools is pretty amazing. I haven't seen that play out very much um, in many schools. And even the part about, though, going to YouTube and learn, using it as a learning tool, most schools don't let kids do that. Um, you know, they, yeah, again, but most they, kids do it, though. Most kids do it. Right. Like, it I think that the difference is the intentionality is like, yeah, schools have to control they can't get rid of this control thing. But once you, well, you know, once the kids have seen YouTube, it's hard to keep, it's hard to keep them down at the farm. You know, no like, doubt. like they, they, then they, then they see like, Oh, this is my world. Which I think goes back to what both of us are saying. And that requires us to re-envision exactly what those roles are and, and, you know, and how we think about what an education is within schools. So I want to end this just with one, one other question. And, and I'll, I, I remember, not the exact moment, but I remember this quote almost exactly from when I read it in, in the first edition of the book, because I thought it was so powerful. And it really um, just made me kind of take a breath and go, that's a very profound thing to say. Um, but I'll read it to you again. And I'm wondering if your sense of it has changed at all from 2009 to 2019. But you wrote... The danger is that public schools may be left with the students who have no other choice, while parents who can provide other resources will avail themselves of environments that can take full advantage of the new technologies for learning. 
And I wonder the extent to which you think public schools still are perhaps um, in danger of being the place where those who can't opt out end up. Um, what do you see right now and moving forward on that? Yeah, I think that danger has gotten even worse. Um, I work with a number of uh, public schools, um, both here in the state and around the country. And the schools that are under the most pressure to comply with the NCLB-like instructional models are um, schools who have the poorest kids. And so those kids just get like a triple whammy, first of all they're forced to undergo instruction that is explicitly designed not to be engaging. It's designed to help them learn things that they don't care about. Um, they have the, the, the least access to the kinds of liberational power of digital media and learning tools, because even when they get Chromebooks and access to tablets, they're locked down. And um, also, they don't have, the schools do not build in um, access to affinity group type learning. They have typically, because of budget issues, the fewest um, extracurricular activities, the fewest access, access points to interest-based learning, things like band and theater and um, arts programs are almost always cut in schools that have educate the poorest young people. Um, and this is just, this is awful. Like we know, I mean, one, one really clear way to put this is that you know what the effective learning tools are because that's what rich people buy for their kids. Right. Right. And, and so we know what that is, despite what social scientists say about moving the needle on test scores. We know that summer camps around making and coding camps and adventure stuff and arts-based learning and theater and performance, this is what people who have means understand as preparation for 21st century work and living environments. This is what they buy, right? And so it, it, the fact that our discourse on learning has not reflected that shift in how we think about um, what constitutes an, uh, a high quality learning space really exacerbates that danger. It makes us into much more of a class-based society where the kids who have the least opportunity continue to get the least access. And, you know, in a, in, I work in a public um, university where the struggle for equity is, is right here. Like we, at UW-Madison, we see ourselves as, as on the forefront of of that movement. And I think that things like personalized learning and affinity groups and access to digital media learning environments is absolutely the equity challenge for the 21st century. And, and I know that many of your listeners feel that way as well. Um, um, and I'm really looking forward in the next 15 years when that argument starts to get built into the public discourse um, more and more. Well, Rich, fascinating conversation. I hope it takes less than 15 years. I hope that could start in, in, in 15 days or 15 months. But listen, really appreciate your time. That was just a, a really great conversation. And uh, 
Maybe we can do it again in another 10 years. <laughs> we'll see Even shorter. I can tell you I'm, I'm working on uh, two, two different uh, short projects now. One is um, I run a research group on personalized learning here at UW-Madison, and we are um, putting together a book for next year on, on, on what we know about personalized learning from the schools we work with. And I'm also coming up with a book that takes a lot of the insights from my book with Alan and turns them into how do we build the schools that we need um, for 21st century learners. And so that, and that should come out next year as well. So when those come out, then I'll, um, hopefully we'll be able to talk about them. That would be great. And those would be perfect topics for the conversation that we're having in Change School and in our community as well. So I really look forward to that. Thanks so much, Rich. Really appreciate it. Thank you again, Will. Good luck with your work. Thank you. Cheers.